So we've been in Luke. What we did last time is we got started on prayer. And we finished, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, two times ago. Then last time we got started on prayer. And we got through the friend at midnight. And we also got to the character of the Father and the Lord's Prayer. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to finish up prayer. And then I think I'm going to start on signs of the kingdom, present and future. And there are no parables in them. But there is a good discussion of end times, which is always something that people like. So we're going to perhaps get started on that tonight, perhaps not. Where we are then is in Luke 18, and that is the balancing section to Luke 11, which was the Lord's Prayer and the Friend at Midnight. And for those of you who weren't here last time, the Lord's Prayer represents the proper content of prayer. And then the friend at midnight represents your assurance in prayer. And then finally, the character of the Father represents the character of the Father, because that's what everything depends on. So what we're going to do now is see the balancing side, and we'll start with the unjust judge in Luke 18, and You'll notice as we go through this that the subject of the parable of the unjust judge is again assurance in prayer. And then the next thing we'll do is the Pharisee and the publican. And that balances with the proper content of prayer with the proper attitude in prayer. So the proper content of prayer then is the Lord's Prayer. Assurance in prayer is the friend at midnight. And then you have the character of God, which is... You know, what, which of you having a father, you know, asking for bread would get a stone, that kind of thing. And so now we're going to go to assurance and prayer again, which is the unjust judge, and then balancing the proper content of prayer is the proper attitude in prayer, and that'll be the Pharisee and the publican. So now I'm in Luke 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they are always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. First off, we've laid the character of this judge. And that's critical, of course. This is a guy who neither fears God nor man. He is corrupt, and he is not a believer. So you have this widow who is the biblical poster child for helpless. Remember in the Torah, it says that you will not oppress a foreigner, you will not oppress the fatherless, and you will not oppress the widow. So throughout the Torah and the Old Testament, the poster children, if you will, for people who have got to be protected and defended because they can't do it themselves includes widows. In the Torah, when it lists the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow and says that you may not oppress them, the implied threat is if they cry out, I will hear them and I will take up their cause. So it is really better for you if you take up their cause yourself and you avoid 
oppressing them rather than have me come and take up their cause, which you're not going to like. So here we have a judge who is faced with one of these poster children for helplessness, a widow. And Yeshua is setting this up as this guy is corrupt. And furthermore, he doesn't fear God. So this setup then, you need to understand something about oriental courts. It's just like any court in the world. If you have money, you get real swift justice. It's just the way it is. Sorry about that. That's just humanity. It doesn't matter whether it's the United States or Soviet Russia. I mean, the, the quality of the justice you get may change, but people with a lot of resources get their cases heard. Obviously, a widow doesn't have a lot of resources. I mean, again, that's the whole purpose of having her be the protagonist here. But what she does have is the judge, in order to keep his position, has to be viewed by the public as being magnanimous. The stereotype of an oriental gentleman is that he's generous and magnanimous and so forth. So, for example, there was a case, I guess in the 50s, a couple of guys had tried to assassinate King Hussein, and they were on the run. And King Hussein's motorcade was coming through town, and one of these guys ran out into the crowd, threw himself on the ground in front of the motorcade, and pleaded for mercy. This is a guy that had tried to assassinate Hussein. Hussein gets out of the car, lifts him up, and pardons him. Because that's what's expected of a great king, mercy. This guy didn't try and defend himself. He didn't try and argue his case. He didn't try and prove he was innocent or any of that kind of stuff. He simply threw himself on the ground in front of the king and said, forgive me. So even though this guy doesn't fear God and doesn't fear men, he has a position to maintain. And he's an important man in the community. So he cannot have his guards grab this gal by her widow's cloak and pitch her out of his court. That would be completely beneath his dignity. So she has got a place where she can sit in the court, and every time he comes in, she's screaming at him, I want justice. And you know what Proverbs said, better the steady dripping of rain than a contentious woman. There are words to that effect. So she's sitting there, and she's in a position where he can't touch her. And she is making a scene every time he comes in. And finally he says, the only way I'm going to get this woman out of my face is to hear her case. So they say, you have to sort of understand the culture to understand what's going on here. So he goes ahead and listens to her case and gives her justice, whatever that is. Again, notice that he says in verse 4, For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And her continual coming, I will suggest, is not simply showing up in court every day. She's making a fuss. And... His image is, you know, I'm the judge, I'm above all this stuff, and he sort of sweeps in and dispenses justice and sweeps out, and he's got this woman, rah, 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 and it just, you know, sort of messes up his mojo. So he finally says, I'll do it. 
And the Lord said, Yeshua said, hear what the unrighteous judge said, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, one of the things to understand is that this parable is not teaching persistence in prayer. I have heard this taught that when you really want something, you whine and cry and bang your heels on the floor and you just keep bugging God until he finally gets tired of you and gives you what you want. That is not what's being said here. Because the character of God is being contrasted to the character of this unjust judge. To get an unjust judge to move, that's what it takes. God has a completely different character. And it's the same with the friend at midnight. Remember we talked about that last week. And I have heard that taught that you just keep rattling on the door of heaven until God opens it up and gives you what you want. That's not what's being taught. It's a contrast between your friend, whom you cannot imagine behaving in the way that is described in that parable, and God, who wouldn't even be tempted to behave in that way. So both of these are talking about your assurance that God will hear your prayer. He may not choose to do anything, but your continual harping at him isn't going to change his mind. He's not like your mother when you were two. You know, if, if you were nasty enough long enough, you could finally wear her down. That, that isn't the case with God. So in both of these cases, what we're doing is contrasting the character of God with the character of a human being. In the one case, a friend in a village. In the other case, a corrupt judge. And in both cases, what it's being said is you can depend on God during your prayer. Now, a couple of things we've talked about in the past, and I'll take just a few minutes to do that. The first one is we have said that when you pray for something, if you are believing what you're praying for, you really only need to do it once. Well, there's a modification to that. And the way I would describe it is your prayers are like seed that you plant. I don't know any gardener here who plants cucumbers in May and then walks off expecting to come back in August and find cucumbers. What you have to do is you have to defend the garden, which means that you've got to water it, you've got to pull the weeds, you've got to do all sorts of stuff maintenance-wise to that garden if you expect to get a crop. And it's the same thing with prayer. You really only need to let God know once what you want. He's not forgetful. He understands. But then what you're doing from there on in your prayer life is you are tending the garden, pulling weeds. You're not digging the, the seed up again to say, is it sprouted yet? Oh, no, I'll put it back. It was sprouted yet? Oh, look, little thing, I'll put it back. That won't do. But what you've got to do is defend it. And by pulling weeds, I'm talking about praying about things that distract, praying about things that might be in the way, praying about things that might pull you in a different direction. I mean, there's all sorts of things to pray about with respect to that original prayer, and that's maintenance, or weeding the garden, or you know, however you want to describe it. But you don't have to remind God what it is you asked for, because he knows that. Verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, how does that 
relate to what we just said. What's he been talking about? What has the widow been asking for? Justice or vengeance. They look a lot alike sometimes. So what he's saying is that God will give his elect vengeance. Nevertheless, will the Son of Man find faith when he comes back? How does that play in there? Are you praying in faith? In other words, the widow has faith that the judge is going to do what she expects him to do. Otherwise, she wouldn't keep coming. Her strategy is, I know this guy's character. He's got a position to maintain. And what he doesn't want is me whining and crying in his courtroom every day. So she's asking for vengeance, and she has faith that she's going to get it. And what Yeshua is saying is, God will also give vengeance to his people. Do they have the faith to expect it? All right, onward. So now we're all the way down to verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So now what we're going to do is your attitude in prayer, and that mirrors the Lord's prayer, which is content in prayer. So one is substance, the other one is attitude. So we're in verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. A couple of things. The Pharisee actually starts off, okay, I thank you that I am not like other men, period. Now, if he'd stopped there, he'd have been fine. In other words, there's lots of places that I thank God I didn't get put. There are just a whole lot of places in this world that I am just as happy that I'm not. So thanking God for his situation would have been okay. And if he stops there, he's probably okay. But what he's doing is he's now going on to remind God of what a great asset he is to God's kingdom. I mean, I, I, I'm really neat, God. You're just really fortunate that you have me. And I'm just reminding you of how fortunate you are, God. I mean, that's sort of his attitude here. The publican, on the other hand, has no such erroneous self-image. I will suggest, and I don't mean to go against Scripture, because I don't, but if we go back to our Musar thing that we're doing on Shabbat, where we're talking about humility... The publican, I will suggest, is perhaps too low. Again, remember we talked in Musar that there's a spectrum. And on the one end, you got the Pharisee, and on the other end, you got the tax collector. And what I'll suggest is somewhere in between is healthy. What I think Yeshua is doing here is he's drawing a vivid contrast. He's painting with bright colors, if you will. Scripture tends to be black and white like a cartoon and you all have seen evil cat and righteous mouse or evil coyote and righteous roadrunner in other words cartoons are painted black and white stark boris badenoff and rocky the flying squirrel 
And the Bible tends to present things the same way. The farther you get away from God, the grayer things become. Because as we see, there are all sorts of variations in that spectrum. And there isn't such a thing as righteous roadrunner and evil coyote. It just doesn't exist in the world that we live in. And things are, are more varied than that. But the Bible, when it writes, says, this man is totally righteous. This man is evil. And it paints it you know, very, very starkly. And it doesn't go into the fact that this evil guy you know, is actually not quite so evil. It's just that it's drawing this lesson for you. And you're supposed to, to understand the lesson. And I think the same thing is going on here with the Pharisee and the tax collector. All right, what I want to do is just sort of introduce this, and we'll spend more time on it next time. We don't have really enough time to develop it. Yeshua talking about the state of Israel and the world as he sees it, and then talking about the signs of when the new one is going to be born. So I want to just sort of start that process and come back to it a little later. So I'm now in Luke 11:14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Remember when we were doing the Matthew parables. This is the event that caused Yeshua to switch from speaking plainly into speaking in parables. We went through the kingdom parables and, you know, the parable of the sower, the wheat and tares, mustard seed, all that, the kingdom parables. And we crossed those with Paul's letters and we crossed those with the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. One of the things that you have trouble with sometimes is linking the gospels in time because they aren't necessarily all chronological and you have different observers this is one of those links between gospels and time where his casting out demons is credited to him having a demon himself or by the power of Beelzebul and as I say that's the thing in Matthew that causes him to start speaking in parables that are not understandable now notice first off the subject is demons. So what he's saying here is the kingdom as it exists now does in fact have demons. Furthermore, I have authority over those demons. Your sons have authority over those demons. And his followers to come will have authority over those demons. And so he's going to talk about that, and then he's going to talk in terms of you've got a kingdom right now where you've got demons running around loose, and you've got you know, the prince of the power over there and you know, all the biblical terms for the unclean spirits and, and the fallen angel hierarchies and so forth. So then what he's going to talk about in the parallel passage is the signs of his coming to put things right. And that's where you've got the 
two women grinding at a mill and one is taken and the other, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's the parallelism we're talking about. So now I'm down to verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. But if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So the first thing he's talking about is, of course, demons. The second thing he's talking about is division in the kingdom. And so in the context of division in the kingdom, what he's saying is, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is in context of division within the kingdom, or unity within the kingdom, if you will. So basically what he's saying there is there's two kingdoms operating here. There's the kingdom of the earth, which is demon-ridden, and there's my kingdom yet to come, and you need to decide which kingdom you're going to be in. If you're going to be in my kingdom, one of the things that you're going to have, oh, by the way, is authority over demons. And he gives them that authority several times throughout the Gospels. Remember when he sends out the 72 and he sends out the 12? And they come back and he says, they say, wow, boss, even the demons are subject to our command. And he says, yeah, 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 yeah. that's really cool, but that's not what's important here. So what he's saying here is, if we are not united, then we are going to be despoiled, and our house will fall. If we are united, then the authority that I have over demons, you will have. Oh, and I want to talk about this some more, and then I want to go into the second one in in some more detail. But the kingdom as it exists, and the signs of the coming kingdom. What's, ha- what's coming. And that's, those are the two parallel ones, and we'll work on that some more next time. <laughs>